0: On my way to meet my Dharma buddy Wayne for coffee. And I got to the shop early uh, and I found us a table, which is a major achievement around Young and Bloor in the mid afternoon. And i was thinking, you know, what could be my topic? What could be my topic? And I just finished a book, um, I was just rereading actually parts of it, by Dale S. Wright. And uh, he wrote a book that we really enjoyed in one of our uh, Zen Studies programs here and it was called, uh, this new book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? Now I also typically read every day something from Tri-Cycle, the Buddhist periodical, and the new issue has not arrived yet, so I'm rereading, and my favourite article from winter of 2018 is one called The Human Deity, it's by Kurt Spellmeyer frequent contributor to Tricycle, and it's about the Buddha's true identity. So I thought, okay, I can put these two together and very boldly say that my talk can be who is the real Buddha and what is Buddhist enlightenment. That's all. (laughs) So then Wayne shows up, and uh, and so it's his turn to pay, right? So great, and we take turns. And I just keep thinking about this stuff while he's getting my (coughs) large latte and magic bar. This is Balzac at the Toronto Reference Library. And we hadn't seen each other in, in an unusually long time, uh, scheduling problems, right? But it's, it's great to have a Dharma buddy, very good. And he says he's grateful too, to have a good friend, so that even though it's been a long time, we can just jump right into whatever we're thinking about, whatever we want to talk about. So, okay, I have to laugh and I say, do you ever wonder, Wayne, who is the real Buddha? And what is Buddhist enlightenment anyway? And he's not even actually a Buddhist, Wayne, but he's very interested in you know, big things, <laughs> great matters of life and death, you know ultimate concerns. And I figure, okay, you know, if the idea of enlightenment is worth talking about, if it is one of these ultimate concerns, it seems like it should r- relate to questions like, who am I? How should I live? What's the real human project? I mean, what should I pay attention to? At least, how can I make today a good day? Otherwise, if not these questions, what's enlightenment really good for, anyway? You know, the first Buddhist group I joined, uh, just because I wanted to learn how to meditate. It was the only group in Winnipeg, and, uh, and, and so that's how it happened. And amazingly, they happened, by, by coincidence, they came together around a real Tibetan Buddhist lama. They pressed him into being their teacher. So we were Tibetan Buddhists of the denomination Nyingma, the old school. And we believed that our Rinpoche, our, our teacher, was an enlightened person. And we accepted the whole package, I guess, that we believed that he was born that way because when he was a young child, he'd been identified as the seventh reincarnated tulku of Daksong, the one who a small group of wise men had been searching for since the death of the sixth tulku of Daksong, And uh, we also... Uh, revered, I would say we worshipped, the Buddha. We imagined him to be as the supreme being in a great pantheon of gods, Garudas, Dakinis, Bodhisattvas, and other entities, a panoply of supernatural beings. This Buddha was way up there, and every way beyond us, a radiant being in the sky. But me, even then, reading widely, being of a contrarian nature, I was born a Protestant, right? Protestant protest. I became very curious and acquainted with another, another Buddha, a historical person. And I was quite reassured. I was even delighted with the Buddha of the Pali Canon. Here was a young man who left his home, his parents weeping to seeing, setting out on his journey, seeking something, trying to find himself. Bravely, but Siddhartha Gautama, looking back later, would describe his youthful self as delicate, most delicate supremely delicate, and he'd also recount on his travels how he wrestled with doubts about himself, he suffered from fear and loneliness, he had to contend with his sexual desires. Nothing came easily to this guy, I said, great, he's one of us. (laughs) (laughs) But even after his experiences of enlightenment, his main experience, he's still second-guessing himself. In the moments right after that long night of awakening, he's asking himself, should he tell people about this? Teach it for the benefit of others? Well, maybe not, he says. This dharma, he said, is hard to see, not easily realized. It's abstruse, subtle, deep, going against the flow. No, he thinks, it would be too frustrating to try to share this. Too vexing for me, he sums up what he thinks it would be like. We can be grateful uh, to his friends, who convinced him to change his mind and, and teach. And maybe he was surprised by the traction he got off this dharma, because pretty soon there are people of all castes, all walks of life, enthusiastically following. Still, I'm not sure what kind of enlightenment we're talking about here, because the community he creates seems to be also quite a headache for him. Monks misbehave. There are bad feelings between his new adherents and the families they've left behind. Plenty of conflict inside the sign. And he's embroiled in sometimes volatile political situations outside his song. His attempts at peacemaking here have mixed results. And reportedly, all of this makes him pretty unhappy. Unhappiness that might be inferred from the situation, but also there are specific mentions of his reactions to things. The time he says how tired he is of people always trying to get him to tell him about their past lives. There's a time right in the middle of the Dharma talk he says his back hurts and he has to lie down. And more significantly, he tells his whole congregation, his whole Dharma, that ever since the deaths of Sariputta and Moggallana, the Sangha just feels empty. This is not a supremely omniscient and sublimely equanimous Buddha, as in the Mahayana canon. This is a man who makes mistakes, sometimes has to change his mind, reverses decisions. In one sense... He dismisses 500 monks who show up for a Dharma talk, probably some of them walking for days to get there because they annoyed him by taking too long to settle down for his talk. <laughs> so he tells them to go take a hike. <laughs> some of the locals convince him that, okay, let him back in, please, and deliver, <laughs> and he delivers his talk as scheduled, but he does that. He's convinced, okay, he's changed his mind. And then a real thorn in his side, so to speak, he, he never seemed to figure out how to deal with his cousin, Devadatta. This is a really mischievous character, Devadatta. He wanted to take over the Buddha's role. I was trying to make a coup here. He even put a hit out on the Buddha. He actually hired assassins. But Devadatta was still family, so you know he was his cousin. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another story, uh, famous, maybe apocryphal, was about how initially resistant the Buddha was to ordaining his aunt, ordaining any woman, because she was a woman. When he was challenged on, he said, it should be okay, women can become enlightened, but it would really play out badly for the Sangha's public image. And so what will people think? It took the repeated entreaties of his most trusted attendant, Ananda, to get the Buddha to see the light on this one do the right thing, despite the flack. I took in all this with great delight. I'm still delighted in the human beingness of Siddhartha Gautama, especially because in intervening years I've become more acquainted with them, and at the same time been less than pleased sometimes with my own choices, and what the Buddha did with his life is, and stands still, is an amazing inspiration for sure, as a person needs ideals. I've seen hundreds, maybe thousands by now, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, become Buddhists, get involved here at the temple, for example, for a short time, for a long time, for a good time, I hope. But in all this time, I don't think I've heard anybody say, the reason I'm here is I, I want to get enlightened. I want to do what the Buddha did, be like him. People mainly come here, we're seeking relief from what's painful in our lives. We want to fix what's not working. People just want to get fixed. Maybe me 25 years ago, you know, hearing that meditation is a good thing to do, I want to pick up that skill because I want to be happier. And that's good. Also, the fact that maybe some of us keep showing up because we share questions about big, the ultimate concerns, and we like associating people who are similarly interested. All wholesome, all connected. But, you know, if it had been good enough for the Buddha, these reasons, maybe we'd remember him for founding the YMCA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, or My Sailing Club. You know, fitness, abstinence, social connectedness. But what the Buddha founded was a religion. And there's a big difference, to which, don't you think it behooves us to pay more attention? is, after 2,500 years, the great matter of waking up, the nature of enlightenment, has become not one bit less like how the Buddha originally described it. Hard to see, not easily realized, abstruse, subtle, deep, going against the flow. If anything, the flow it goes against has become more powerfully distracting. And what's more, Enlightenment has not, in all these centuries, been revealed and realized as just one thing. Every age and culture has put forward a different view, with a different way of describing it, and very different values for it, some of which plainly suck. The Enlightened Zen masters of 20th century Japan supported their nation's fascist militancy. And in our time in the West, where individualism and personal freedom is valorized, One famous teacher after another has been brought down by convictions of sexual predation. Okay, you could say they were fakes to begin with, but you know, the fact is that these perpetrators have been indisputably adept and skilled meditators, charismatic community leaders, and they were awesomely well versed in the highest teachings. All of which makes me quite frustrated enough just to want to dial back my religious aspirations, go back to meditating towards the goal of just having a reasonably okay day, and deal with just what comes my way. And as far as enlightenment goes, not worry about throwing that baby out with the bathwater. But no, I mean, if this is a religion and not a club, we want to take the baby home, bring the baby upright, making the evolution of enlightenment our responsibility for the world and for future generations. So, to it, Dale S. Wright, in this new book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? postulates 10 concepts he thinks should be guiding our thinking about enlightenment. I'm gonna share them with you. Wright's thesis number one, that enlightenment is impermanent and interdependent just like everything else. He allows this definitely goes against the grain because most Buddhist traditions have depicted enlightenment as universal, timeless, and unconditioned. But, Wright says, just as there are changes in human practices, capacities, needs, and interests, so too there will be a change in this highest ideal of human excellence. This is number two. That paying attention to how we talk about Buddhism and enlightenment, and the words we use, can help us deepen our encounter with this tradition and with life. The word enlightenment is one example. It's not a translation from the original Sanskrit term. That word would be awakening. Enlightenment is a word from the European intellectual tradition. Right, says that's okay, because contemporary Buddhists like us shouldn't get all worried about trying to be accurate in relation to some notion of an authentic, original Buddhism. Enlightenment is a word that makes sense to Western people, so let's use it here in the West. The important thing is to maximize the benefits of every resource that has the potential to deepen our encounter with life and the primary challenges of our time. And in the foreseeable future, attunement to how the language of Buddhism changes and evolves is going to become more and more important to our real-life encounter, to our faith and our needs and our world. Thesis 3. Of the most admirable and effective ways to go forward, will be away from beliefs in the supernatural and otherworldliness generally. No all-knowing certainties and no following people who claim to know everything. We don't need to be looking to the the imperturbable saints of antiquity who were immune to life's instability, contradiction, and predicament. Are these exemplars even good for anything in our lives of emotional vulnerability, empathy, and falling in love? If they're so inhumanly superior that they can't get the joke, forget them, Wright says. Not quite in so many ways. <laughs> <words. laughs> Even the stories of ascetics in caves, in monastics, in isolation, and celibacy, sure, I mean, they were a step forward from the ways of battle-loving heroes of the Odyssey and other myths. These ascetics, they, they, they replaced the battle mongers, but... Can we now stop daydreaming about escaping into a life with no conflict, no doubts, in which we lack nothing? And instead, can we not engage compassionately and skillfully in the real world? Four, enlightenment in our time will become much more communal and collective, a shared transformation. Maybe this is counterintuitive too, given the strength of individualism in the West, particularly. But here also, in the West, there's a growing awareness that this planet is too crowded, too small, and its resources just too limited for us to go on denying that we're all in this together. Tribalism, exclusion, discrimination on the basis of sexuality, gender, class, race, or religion, they just don't hold against knowledge of our shared biological ancestry our biological evolution. The traditional view of karma was personal. Meditation seemed deeply private and intimate. And the gurus were revered for their individuality, even their eccentricity. This individualistic aspect of Buddhism was no doubt one of the reasons for the initial popularity of the religion in uh, mid-20th century west, the beatniks, for example, you know, the eccentrics. But times change, and enlightenment in our time includes the sense that societies establish the conditions for individual achievement, that all possibilities for personal accomplishment are shaped by historical and social forces. Well, I was bearing in mind that one of those social forces is the celebration of diversity and the beauty of unique creative forces, voices. Paces number five. Enlightenment will deepen and broaden the whole idea of freedom. The type of freedom envisaged by the European Enlightenment was about being free of the external constraints of life. Institutions should become more democratic, for example. The freedom that Buddhist enlightenment is ours inspired has been mainly about freedom from our own habits, our desires, emotions, opinions, ideologies, our inner constraints. If we put both liberative forces together in the future, We'll be taking responsibility, not only for our own behavior, but for our values, our collective and personal interests, even for the creation of our characters and traits, our whole ways of being in the world. Freedom to not only get out from under what's limiting us, but to get right out in front of the waves of change, creating a new future by changing ourselves. Thesis number six. Meditation is not only a traditional resource, might also be a wonderful new opportunity for contemporary Buddhism. Practices of meditation have the potential to become significant cultural resources for the development of human consciousness. Going beyond the traditional practices of mindfulness, concentration, and metta-loving-kindness, new ways of meditating may well return to ancient ways for cultivating powers of thought, mental exercises, assist us in formulating a practical philosophy of life. The study of philosophy in the West has failed in this respect. It used to be, but now uh, it, it's not about how to live and about the practice of making ethical decisions. A maturing Buddhist faith may rekindle that ideal. And in respect to concentration in the breath, what has in the past proven beneficial to free us from delusion, enmity, and greed may yet prove to be a really good thing for the growth and expansion of our most positive potentials. relates to thesis number seven. Contemporary Buddhists are in an excellent position to appropriate insights from neuroscience and evolutionary philosophy, psychology. We can take from science now in a way that, that has been impossible before. But once upon a time, 2,500 years ago, was the brilliant realization of the Buddha is rapidly now becoming a set of scientifically explicated principles applicable to disciplines ranging from education, artistic expression, athletics, and beyond. The center idea is that every intention, thought, and action shapes the mind and body of the actor. We make our habits, and our habits in turn create us. Enlightened self-sculpting is the natural realization being no fixed eternal, or separate self. Meditation is the quintessential example of how we make this a practice. Of course, not all disciplined efforts make the world a better place, right? Some make it far worse. People learn to meditate so they can be better assassins, you know, uh, (laughs) better warriors. Uh, Our personal answer to the question of what enlightenment is, therefore, is that it's not at all an abstract ideal that lacks relevance in social engagement it is a scientifically supportable motivating force that helps determine the direction of our self-creating self sculpting practices eight enlightenment in contemporary terms is the expansion of horizons and enlargement of our vision into every sphere of human life here he's talking about enlargement of responsibility expansion of possibility the average person of the average person's sense of responsibility certainly takes into account self, maybe family, a few friends, and hopefully some kind of community, right? That's what we imagine our responsibility contains. Compare that to the way Thich Nhat Hanh feels about responsibility. From his home in France, this Vietnamese monk wrote a letter to the Los Angeles Times a number of years ago in which he personally took responsibility for the actions of LA police who beat a man to death, Rodney King. Han said, I'm the police. I failed. Right? I'm not only the victim, I feel that too, and the victim's family, but I am one of the police who beat him to death. I know that I'm a human like them and it, it is my responsibility. His empathy knows no limits. His feeling of connection is such. you can imagine the possibility of meditations on one side of the world healing the suffering and playing out an action in another part of the world away. The sense of responsibility is such that he'll devote himself to this. This is what he does. Possibility and responsibility. Enlarged, expanded infinitely. Thesis number nine. Enlightenment can manifest in all of human emotion in the fullest expression. The saints and supernatural beings of ancient religions were imagined as unemotional, you know, profoundly and stoically equanimous. Just that little smile. At this point, it is important to us, postmodern people, to realize that for us, a life without laughter, without sadness, without desire, and without ever kicking up our heels for joy, it just seems impoverished we've come to see our emotions as integral to our nature, as elements that we wouldn't, even couldn't live without healthfully. And certainly, we don't want to repress them. Now, with enlightenment, our emotional intelligence can evolve. With the benefit of skillful meditation, we can experience our feelings as wholesome. Maybe it used to be that lives of greatness were created with suppressing unwanted, just with a kind of a white knuckle self control and the strength to curtail emotion. But the emotional intelligence of a new view of enlightenment can show a softer and more humorous <laughs> touch, an inclination to get the joke, and also to suffer, but to suffer more wisely than we have in the past. I think of listening to great music. You know, when the flow of tears becomes sublime and spiritual astonishment bursts out, awe and gratitude rise to the surface even in the presence because of the presence of human suffering. It's the last thesis. The question of what is enlightenment will be met in a new spirit, one that is more like the way we are when we're making music, dancing, sculpting, painting, poetry. Not what you call a discipline or a strategy. The skills required to move into the rhythm of enlightenment are openness, mindfulness, responsiveness, resiliency, flexibility. These require improvisation, creativity, not analytical precision and engineered calculations. And what's more, no real enlightenment is ever achieved by a direct attack on enlightenment as the goal. We focus on matters that are right in front of us, happiness, unhappiness, our relationships with friends and family, our work lives, the politics, justice, technological change, climate change, whatever and everything in our day. Our thought of enlightenment can underpin and inspire all of our aims and efforts, but it should never, in itself, become the primary focus of our attention. It illuminates everything, but too much time spent gazing directly at it just blurs our vision. The tighter we try to grasp it, it's like when we're riding on a roller coaster, the more we just frees up. <laughs> so when Samudhi asked the Buddha, how then is enlightenment attained? The Buddha replied, enlightenment is attained neither through a path nor through a non-path. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe the point is, it's always a paradoxical kind of answers, right? Is just to be here, uh, be living this life in meditative openness, applying worldly wisdom and graceful compassion to learn, practice, interpret and improvise, performing the art of life as musicians make great music. You know the words cure and curate come from the same root. We curate our lives so we are healed and our lives are transformed into art, spiritual art. The Buddha carries his uh, koan-like message further when he conflates path and goal, blending means and ends. He says, just enlightenment is the path. Just the path is enlightenment. So, yeah, no, I mean... At the end of the day, and at the end of my too-long, too red Dharma talk, I still like it that the Buddha was a real person. But now when I think about him being just like one of us, I think, yeah, okay, he was, sort of, and that's great. The down-to-earth person was real, but so was the radiant being in the sky. Because being both, the Buddha reminds us that we still don't know what we really are, what our human beingness might be capable of becoming. So I need more than one Buddha, I need at least two right now, just like everyone needs to be more than one me, and you right now. Thank you. Sorry for such a long talk, I honestly did not have time to come up with a shorter one. (laughs) Good morning, have a great day.